Good morning. Very pleased to see your faces here. Well, why don't we start with a word of prayer as we dive into God's word this morning. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your loving kindness toward us. We thank you for your goodness. And right now, Lord, we thank you for your precious word. And we would ask that our hearts would be receptive to what you would have to speak to us this morning. And that, Lord, we would not only consume it, but that, Lord, we would chew it, that we would digest it, and that, Lord, we would live it. And that, Lord, as we read about your kingdom, the kingdom that's here but still coming, yet to be fully realized, we would ask that we would be people who are mindful of your kingdom, that we would live a lifestyle that screams, kingdom come, that, Lord, come soon. And so we would ask that you would be glorified by this time, and that you would reveal yourself to us in our midst. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen. So we will continue in our series in Isaiah chapter 2. title of this message is God's Magnetic Kingdom. So will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2? We're going to start reading in verse 1, and we will read until verse 5. So read with me now, if you will. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall rule between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Verse 5. O come, or O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now I have to admit something. I really like biographies of dictators. You're like, what are you talking about, Jared? That's rude. But I like understanding how dictators, evil men, come into power and how they're allowed to take power. And looking at the kingdom of God here, we understand that none of the normal Machiavellian techniques, techniques are being used where people are taking power and God is all of a sudden, you know, coming up and using by force to establish a kingdom very unlike what like Vladimir Lenin did when he he used propaganda to start the Bolshevik revolution. The word Bolshevik actually means the majority, and for a while he wasn't even the majority in Russia, but he used propaganda to, to divide Russia and to get his way and to start a revolution and to slam down his iron fist on his country. Or you look at Mao Zedong, who, who was quoted as saying that power comes out of the rifle. He forced people into submission, and he used brutality. 
but those men are both dead and their countries are in the rule of a different person. And we understand that people who gain power by these means often lose it before long. But the kingdom that we're reading about today is a wonderful kingdom. It's the kingdom of God here reigning on earth. And if you read Hebrews chapter 12, which we'll visit later this morning, we also learned that this is an unshakable kingdom, that this is about to come to pass, and it's a certainty that cannot be stopped. This is the kingdom of God that we're reading about this morning. And so God doesn't have to forcibly take power. He doesn't have to come in and divide the country at a point of weakness. No, God already rules. Psalm 135, verses 5 through 6 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and all the seas and deeps. We know that God already rules. So when we talk about God ruling, you're like, okay, well, like God already rules. He rules from heaven. He rules the entire galaxy. There is nothing that is outside of his control. And yet we come to this place in Isaiah that speaks of the latter days, and it talks about God's very personal rule on earth. And so we approach this chapter, and we see that there's a change of thought, there's a change of perspective with the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 1, as you remember, we spent a few weeks there, and, and Isaiah's trying to bring the people back to covenant faithfulness. And he's talking about God's judgment on their spiritual idolatry, their spiritual adultery, how he's telling them to turn back to God and to obedience. And all of a sudden, we get this transition right here, and we have this prophecy proper. We have this prediction of the future, which is more in line of what we think when we think of the prophets of God. We think of predicting the future, and we have it here. But when it says in verse 2, the latter days, he's not talking about just merely the, the three last days on earth, or those specific days, or a specific event far off. But he's rather talking about the culmination of the days, the fullness of the days, the end result of the days. And it's as though we're in the seed of what right now, uh, we're in the seed of what will be a giant oak tree later on, if you will. And we see the full realization of the kingdom of God in the latter days. And so we will learn today one major point, and it's that God will bring the entire world under his personal rule, and reign. And not only that, but that we are invited into this sort of kingdom, and we'll see how. But how does the reign of God look? How does the kingdom of God appear in this chapter of Isaiah? Well, first we see, with the first marker of God's rule, we see God's triumph God's triumph over everything else. Notice that it says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Notice that it says, first of all, the house of the Lord. This is God's dwelling place. There's no temple on earth, no 
worship place on earth that can contain God, and yet he chooses to bring his presence down to earth, down to the, the house of the Lord, down on his holy mountain, and he rules from there. And his mountain is established as the highest above all things. And then we start to realize here that God's talking about this mountain growing s- symbolically. It's not just that it will be at a higher elevation than all other mountains, but rather that God will triumph over every other so-called God. He will rule. And so it's a more than a literal change in elevation. It's more than just a geological event. It's a spiritual exaltation of God over every other so-called God. Notice that it's on a mountain. It's on a mountaintop. And that's usually where the, the Canaanites and later the Israelites adopted the worship of other gods. They worshiped on top of mountains. We learn in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2, God's command to the people. He says, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. You shall destroy all their worship practices. Where is it? It's on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. So God is proving all other pagan gods as a sham. And he's triumphing over them right here on their own territory. So this is the mountain of the house of the Lord. This is his mountain of rule. We saw a different mountain we, when we were studying the, the Ten Commandments. We saw the, the mountain of Sinai where God's presence came down. And God's presence was so huge that the people were actually afraid and they were a little bit pushed back right here. But the way God rules on this mountain, Mount Zion, which is a literal hill by Jerusalem, but symbolic of his rule, of the earth, the way he rules on this mountain is very different. The people's reaction is very different. His subject's reaction is very different than the people's reaction at the base of Mount Sinai, where God was thundering and lightning and giving down his law. And so the second marker of God's rule from Zion is the conversion of the nations, the natural attractiveness of God's mountain to the entire world. Notice in verse 2, the end of verse 2, it says that all nations shall flow to this mountain and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may we may walk in his paths. And so God's rule is out of his holy mountain, but his rule extends throughout the entire earth. Isn't that amazing? That God's rule is encompassing the entire earth. This is greater than the God's people would have thought at this time, that God's rule shall go out and all nations shall submit to his rule. And so they approach here. They approach God. They approach God freely. They approach God as a sort of magnetism that's within them. And how strange that is. Because in, uh, you look at a place like Psalm 14, where the psalmist is looking over the entire world, and he's saying, everyone's just bad. Everyone's evil. There is no one who, seek, who seeks God. 
And yet we see right here all these people saying, show us, let, let us go find God. They're, they're not only coming, but they're inviting other people to come and saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And why are they coming? They're going to listen to a sermon. They're going to say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord so that we can hear him teach. God coming down and teaching them personally. What an amazing picture. And their belief, notice, is right on the heels of God's exaltation. God's exalting himself above every other mountain, above every other power that exists on earth. And so people have this, all of a sudden, this natural attractiveness, um, this natural attraction to God. God is the one with the natural attractiveness. And so this is really the core of any evangelism that we would do is that we, we really start with the, the goodness of God, right? When, when God is exalted, then people come and believe. His rule right here is a magnetic rule. And God brings out his church, his people from all nations in the world. Isn't it so nice that we have a picture of the latter days, of a picture of the end result of all things, and what is it a picture of? It's a picture of multiple people believing. As, as John had, had prayed earlier today, that, that in the latter days, we do know, the Bible does tell us that, that people will, people's hearts will grow cold, they'll grow selfish, they'll grow disobedient to parents, and yet we also have a simultaneous promise that God has his people in the entire world. God has his people scattered all throughout the world, and they, are, they all will be drawn to him in time. Isn't that, isn't that so comforting that we can go on a missions trip or we can evangelize, no matter how far it is, knowing that God has people out there that he wants to bring into his family, that he wants to draw into his kingdom. It's a great comfort for us as Christians. It's a great comfort for evangelism, knowing that it's not just me that's building this kingdom, but it's God that's bringing people into it. Isn't that amazing? And the people who come right here have an appetite for the things of God. They want to learn about God. It came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, they say, let's come to the house of the Lord. Let's come and hear his teaching. And isn't that how, when we become Christians, all of a sudden we have these desires. I didn't want to go to church at all. And all of a sudden, I want to go to Bible study. I want to learn about God. Where does that appetite come from? Where does that attraction come from? Well, it comes from God. When we see that he is attractive to us. Romans chapter 2 tells us that it's not, you know, that God's scaring us into believing, but that it's the goodness of God that brings someone to repentance and brings us into reconciliation with him. And so the goodness of this kingdom, the magnetism of God's kingdom, is that Christ is being offered to us. And he's being offered to us as a way of reconciliation with God. One of the most comforting verses in the entire Bible is a verse in James chapter 2 that says that God is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for our sins, but for the entire world. 
Propitiation basically means to bring an offending party into reconciliation. And who's the offending party? It's a hint. It's not God. It's us. We're the offending party. We we are the ones who are sinners. We were the ones who are um, basically our, our sins keep us at arm's length from God's kingdom. And yet the kingdom of God right here, it invites everyone. It invites everyone through the free offer of Christ. And we'll talk about a little bit about that more. But what is the third marker of the kingdom of God? Look, the truth of God proclaimed. Notice in verse 3, the end of verse 3, we read, Out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Out of Zion shall go the law. This is God's See, this is the place where God rules. And this is, what is their export? What is their main export? It's not culture, art, or farming techniques or anything like that, but it's God's word. And we see that was the intention the whole time. God's invitation, first to the patriarchs, then to the people of Israel, then through the entire world, God's invitation to come to him. And God's law, and God's word, And in the midst of Israel's idolatry, we notice that they weren't exporting the word of God. They weren't letting it go out, but rather they were importing idolatry. They were importing different practices. They were importing the kind of worship that got the Canaanites before them kicked out and killed off by God. They were already judged, and Israel was doing things that God had judged other nations for. And they were importing instead of exporting, if you will. They were importing idolatry instead of exporting the word of God. They were given this precious thing, God's law. And they cast it aside and they wanted something else. So God's word booms out of Jerusalem in his kingdom. God's word goes out into the entire world. We see something We see the power of God's word in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. Um, It's a a verse you may already be familiar with. Uh, Verses 10 through 11, I should say. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, show show so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the power of God's word. And this is a transformative word that God wants to send out into the entire world. And so this is a marker of God's kingdom. And so the, the next thing is, what, what is the result of God's law? What is the result of God's um, word going out into the entire world? world? Well, we see God's justice performed. So that's our fourth marker of God's kingdom. We see perfect justice performed. And we see that in verse 4. It says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They're going to give up war and they're going to take up gardening. And so what, what, do, we, what do we take from this here? Well, we, we see that God's righteous truth 
will result in perfect justice. And God himself will sit here and himself judge the nations. To be a judge in Israel is, is a, something that's not unfamiliar to the people. Moses was a judge and he decided between cases when he was bringing the the people into the promised land and they were wandering in the desert and they had issues amongst each other. They had disputes. And so it actually got so um, taxing on Moses' time that he had people under him and people under them to judge cases. And if they had an issue that was so hard, they would bring it to the next person up. And if there's something that was really hard, it was like it came all the way up to the Supreme Court. You know, it came to Moses himself and he judged. And, you know, we have different, um, different levels of judges here. You know, we have different levels of courthouses. We have, you know, state courthouses. And then if a case is really difficult, then it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And sometimes even if there's a crime, if there's a war crime so heinous, it goes into an international court where there's several nations deciding if there's, if there's an, a huge issue that one nation simply cannot decide. But none of those cases, none of those cases, or very rarely in those cases, unless someone's just totally indifferent about the outcome, do you see this reaction where people just give up on war, give up on their disputes completely. You don't see a conversion from a Supreme Court decision, if you will. You don't see someone on the wrong side of a decision saying, oh, well, I guess I'm wrong, you know. I guess this is the this is the way it is, and I, I'm going to change my life. And no, it, usually there's people angry about the decision. Usually they harden their heart even more if if something's decided against them in an earthly court. And yet God's judgment is so perfect that look at the reaction of the nations. God's deciding their disputes against each other. God's deci- deciding their dissension, and what do they do? They they give up on war completely. They say, well, just going to give up right here. I'm going to get rid of my weapons. I'm going to throw away my sword. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to melt my axe down and I'm going to make it into gardening tools because that's what I'm going to be doing now. We don't see that in earthly courts. This is true justice. This is true reconciliation where God's taking completely opposing parties and bringing them together. And isn't that kind of what God does with us? We're coming from different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, and God brings us together across borders, across allegiances, and we all submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so we see the nations complying here, and all their struggles, all their disputes and conflicts melt away, or actually smelt away since they're melting the... Okay, that's the last joke I'll do today. So, so they're melting right here, and we see gardens as the token of peace. What's the most peaceful thing in the world? Maybe you're not thinking yard work, but apparently, according to this, the most peaceful, peaceful thing in the world is yard work. And why is that? Because it goes back to the garden. It goes back to when God created the first order of things, and Adam and Eve were simply told to work the garden. It goes back to simple community and work and communion and fellowship with God. And we see that was God's plan all along, to come down to dwell with his people in a personal way. And so that is God's end goal. That is God's end point. 
That is where he wants to end up. And that, what, that is what his kingdom will look like eventually. Perfection. A time of peace. But again, we have to, we, we have to be cautious because we can't just, you know, jump the gun and, pun, pun intended, I guess, and get rid of our guns completely and uh, think that, okay, if we get rid of our guns, then, you know, God will bring peace. But know that that puts the cart before the horse. It's the heart that needs to be changed. And then people will give up their weapons. People will seek peace after. And so understanding all of this and seeing how great God's kingdom is, we have to ask ourselves, what does that do with us today? What, what are we supposed to do with this sort of promise of, okay, like we see God's kingdom, we see there will be peace, and that's good, that's good news, because, you know, we need something good to look forward to, but is that just appeasement for us? Uh, Karl Marx, uh, it's called religion, the opiate of the masses, it was just appeasement Having them, you know, stay down and keep from revolution because we don't want them to, you know, get too riled up. We'll say, oh, things will get better in the future. I just noticed I mentioned Lenin, Marx, and Mao today. You guys are going to think different of me. But, but is the God's future kingdom, is it just an event that's going to take place in the future? Is it just consolation for a world today that's completely out of balance is this a general message to the religious people in our midst that, okay, like, you're struggling now, you know, you have financial issues and things are struggling now, but they're going to get better, trust me. Is that all we have to learn from this? No. Because this is a prophecy here that's going to happen in the future in full realization. It's going to happen in future in full leaf, but it's happening now. As I said before, we're, we're in the seed we're in, the, we're in the sapling of what's going to be a full oak. And we see the rule of God even today through God's people as Christ reigns in us. God's rule from Zion is a present reality in as much as it is a future promise. As Christ reigns personally in his church, God is bringing us into his kingdom Seemingly out of nowhere. That's, that's why we have this um, interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, if you would like to um, turn there with me, about the kingdom of God and about what, what the author of Isaiah, what Isaiah's really meaning when he's talking about Mount Zion and God's rule on earth right here. uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And I'll just go ahead and read the rest of the, the section. Um, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then if you drop down to verse 28, it, it tells us something very comforting as well. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This is a kingdom 
of God today. It's through Christ. It's in our midst. We're kingdom people. We are citizens of a certain, forever, permanent, unshakable kingdom. And so even if we're, you know, a few terms, presidential terms away from full tyranny in our country, we still have the consolation and the solace that we are still in the kingdom of God. We are still under his lordship, and he rules in our midst, and he is a good God, and that we have fellowship with him. And so how do we see God's present rule today? Where do we see God's present rule? We see it in three ways. The exaltation of Jesus Christ, the true worship of God, and our lives of obedience. So let's go through each of those things. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is the inauguration, really, of God's kingdom on earth, uh, of God's bringing into God's big family and his mass adoption of people. If you will... Um, see, I think it's, it'll be on the screen, but in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus is discussing his um, death, his coming crucifixion. And Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is Christ's exaltation. This is what God wants us to see. God exalts Christ in crucifixion so that he might atone for our sins, that he might be the propitiation, that he, he might reconcile the offending party, us, so that the gates of God's kingdom can be thrown open and so that we can ascend to that hill and that we can tell each other, come, let us worship and let us learn at his feet so that we can freely and boldly approach God. Jesus is drawing all people to himself. And so this is how we are being brought into that Mount Zion. That's how we're being brought into the heavenly Jerusalem. We're brought into that that spiritual kingdom of God because Jesus is drawing us through his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. He's made a spectacle before the world, a symbol of shame so that we can see our desperate need for a savior so that we can go to him for forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with a God who loves us. So we see God's present rule in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So when we, when we come to church, that, that's our main thing. We worship Christ. We talk about Christ. We present Christ as an offering and an atonement for our sins. Because that's God's rule in us. There's nothing else that we can do that really matters. The exaltation of Jesus Christ is everything. That's what brings us into the family when we see him and we recognize our need. But we also see God's present rule in the true worship of God. And I, I bring up John chapter 4 because it's a, it's a passage about worshiping God and the proper way to worship God. John chapter 4, um, verse 19, Jesus is having a kind of a discussion with the woman at the well. It's a very familiar passage. And they get on the topic of worship and how the woman at the well was a Samaritan and she worshipped on a different hill, different than Jerusalem, than the Jews. 
And so here's, we, we come into this discussion right here in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus responds, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus clarifies for us that it's not just a specific mountain. It's not like we have to take a pilgrimage as Christians to, you know, God's mountain outside Jerusalem and worship. No, it's symbolic of how God is drawing all people into his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom on earth right here. And that it's an invitation for us to come and worship the Father. And God is looking for people to worship him. Isn't that funny? If anyone else said that, that would just be, oh, I'm looking for people to worship me. But God is looking for you to worship him. Because he knows that in your worship of him, that is true reconciliation. And that is true pleasure. And that is true community when you're in fellowship with God. Our whole lives come into place when we worship God properly. And so last but not least, um, our, our take-home point for us today is already given to us in Isaiah chapter 2. It's kind of a freebie application to the people of Israel when he talks about God's future kingdom. He says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So there's our application to them, and it's also our application to us today, that God is looking for us to worship him, and he wants us to worship with lives of obedience. And that's how we proclaim, and that's how we live in the kingdom of God, through the daily obedience of our lives. That is the economy of God's worship. That's what we're going to do on our daily basis. That's our, our work for today, no matter what we do. We walk in the light of the Lord. We walk in obedience to God. Isaiah was trying to tell his people that there, there is a kingdom that's coming. There's a kingdom that's going to be delivered freely to you. And all nations will be attracted to it. All nations will come and worship him once they understand the goodness of God. But you have a part to play today. That's what Isaiah was telling to them. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the same way that the invitation of the nations to each other was, come, let us worship and let us learn at the feet of the Lord. Isaiah is telling them, come, even now, you can partake in this kingdom, this here but still coming kingdom. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so I extend that to you today. If you're, you feel like you're outside of God's kingdom, if you feel like you're still at arm's length from God because of your sin, just know that Christ is being freely offered to you. And that God invites you to come into an everlasting, unshakable kingdom and wants to freely give it to you. So why don't we pray? Father, we are thankful for your word. And we're thankful for the invitation that Christ extends to us. 
where he's not just giving us a benefits package or a get-out-of-hell-free card, but, Lord, he offers himself. He offers reconciliation. He offers fellowship with the family of God, an inheritance in an eternal kingdom, and forever dwelling with you, God, in eternity. Lord, we understand what a solemn gift this is, and yet what a joyous one it is as well. And I would ask for any hearts in here, Lord, that are still resisting you, that are still resisting your kingdom, that they would give up, and that they would simply accept you and accept reconciliation with you, that they may come and worship. So we ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen.